This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. The turn of the 21st century brought with it a fresh wave of optimism about the future. When Tony Blair emerged from his North London home into the morning sunshine to head for the palace, he was almost swamped by well-wishers. Like the steam engine which sparked the Industrial Revolution of the late 1700s, the internet is changing everything it touches and the emergence of a tolerant, liberal, multicultural Britain. Let us also be very clear that those who warned of disaster back in the 1960s and 1970s, who said Britain would never accept or be a multiracial society, have been proved comprehensively wrong. The publishing industry needed an author to embody that moment. Enter Zadie Smith and her debut novel, White Teeth. Smith was lauded by critics and lavished with media attention. And all at just 24 years old. Let's go back to 2000 to explore the impact of this bright young star's literary debut. Welcome to 2020, a pop culture podcast by Message Heard. I'm Tara Joshi. And I'm Simran Hans. This is the podcast where we go back to some of the biggest pop culture moments from the year 2000 and re-examine them with 20 years of hindsight and a fresh critical perspective. Last week, we talked about two game-changing reality TV shows, Big Brother and Faking It. This week, we're talking about a book that is emblematic of the new millennium, Zadie Smith's White Teeth. In this episode, we're also doing something new. For the first time, we're joined by a guest, publisher Charmaine Lovegrove. We'll talk to Charmaine about what impact the novel and its author had back in 2000 and discuss their continued legacy today. But first, let's go back to the source material. Okay, so for anyone who hasn't read White Teeth, here's what you need to know. Zadie Smith was born in the late 70s, in in 1976, in Willesden, which is not the most glamorous part of North London, as I'm sure she would tell you herself, but has been kind of the subject of of many of her novels. She is a a novelist, first and foremost, but she's also a cultural critic and an essayist as well. She is of mixed heritage. Her mother is Jamaican and her father is white British. They divorced when she was a teenager. She ended up going to Cambridge after kind of having an ordinary education at a comprehensive school where she studied English literature and began to write fiction in her spare time. She got discovered by a literary agent reading some of her short stories in the Maze Anthology, which is a collection of 
writing by students who went to Oxford or Cambridge. And White Teeth was her debut novel. She started writing it while she was at university. She sent an 80-page writing sample to Simon Prosser, who is now her her editor and has been her editor kind of since the beginning. And uh, off the back of that, she was reported to have sold the book for a quarter of a million pound advance, which was a huge deal at the time. Tara, maybe you can give us an overview of the book because at over 400 pages, it's pretty difficult to sum up. Okay, okay, I'll give it a go. So White Teeth is a novel about different generations of three families in London, but I guess it's also spread out in different parts of history, in different parts of the world. So part of the novel is in Jamaica, part of it's in India, part of it's somewhere in continental Europe. Broadly speaking, it's a comedic look at how the roots of the past are lived out in the present. For me, I guess the most striking part of it, or the most striking characters, are the new generation of like second gen immigrants who are trying to grow up in that space of like third culture with their parents and their, I guess, grandparents like married to the past versus them trying to live out this present in London and just trying to be. Londoners and what that looks like. Can you talk us through a few of the characters, Tara? So if we're not dropping names throughout the episode, people kind of have an idea of who we're talking about. Again, uh, let me see what I can do. There's Archie, who we start the novel with. Um, Archie's kind of a an ordinary kind of white guy. He served in the war. He's basically this guy who life just sort of happens to him. Um, any decision he makes is done with the flip of a coin. Um, and yeah, he's quite simple, I guess, if that's not me to say. Yeah, I, I guess straightforward w- would be how I'd describe him. And, and he's put in contrast with his best friend uh, who he fought in the war with, Samad, who is a intellectual. He's a Bangladeshi Muslim. And um, the two of them have a supposedly unlikely friendship in which they kind of illuminate each other's differing philosophies on life through their kind of contrasts. Yeah, exactly. So Samad, like throughout the novel, is, I guess, struggling with his faith, particularly when he comes to the UK, like trying to be a good Muslim and feeling as though he's letting that slip away in this very corrupting country. Which then, I guess, brings us to their partners, respectively. Uh, Archie is married to Clara, who is a, a young woman of Jamaican descent. She grew up with a very religious mother. She's also 19 years his junior. Mm. Um, and that dynamic is, I believe, based on Zadie Smith's own parents. Yeah. Um, there's also Alsana, who is Samad's wife, and they have an arranged marriage. She's also younger, but she is... How would you describe her, Tara? I guess she's just very like forthright with her opinions and like what she believes to be true, um, which I I quite like about her. Um, she's she's one of the characters who you really do see like quietly changing over the course of the novel, wherein at first she's just kind of like, I don't need to know any more about my husband than he has shown me. Like it's none of my business. Like I'm just having this quiet arranged marriage life and that's it. There's also their children. Mm. um, And so the novel is kind of divided into sections and in the middle section of the book, Archie and Clara's daughter, Irie, and Alsana and Samad's two twin sons, Majid and Milat. There's also Clara's 
mother, an important character as well, Hortense, who is a very devout Jehovah's Witness. I yeah, I'm doing a very bad job um, describing and, these and characters. Hortense is important because one of the key themes of the book is about sort of fatalism and coincidence and the weird connectedness of life in a kind of spiritual sense, would mm. you say? Yeah, I agree. And I, I guess following on from that, then the the final group of characters of note would be the Chalfin family. They're a family of like very well-to-do, rich, white liberal kind of people. Exactly. Rich, middle-class white people who are extremely well-meaning and kind of self-proclaimed to be liberal. And they kind of take on these three kids and, and tutor them and kind of think they're they're sort of benefactors and it's a very interesting satire of sort of well-meaning liberal intervention yeah so the book was a huge deal at the time zadie smith became an overnight sensation and pretty much an instant literary rock star she was nominated for the booker for the orange prize and um, that novel really kind of cemented her as one of the flagship kind of contemporary British novelists um, still working today. And um, what is your relationship to White Teeth, Simone? I remember reading White Teeth when I was quite young. We had it in paperback. I had missed the TV series, which came out in 2002 on, on Channel 4, I believe, because I was living in the States at the time. So that kind of passed me by. And I, I read it as a young teenager and thought it was hilarious and funny and, and maybe slightly too complex for my kind of young adult brain. There were certain sections of the book that I glommed onto and, and understood more, more coherently, specifically the sort of section that centers on Milat the Lothario, the heartthrob. Um, I, I remember him being a, a formative literary crush. <laughs> so I read the book. I enjoyed it. I didn't sort of think about it deeply. And then I read it again when I was at university studying English on, I think, like a kind of post-colonialism novel. And we were talking about multiculturalism and talking about this book. And then I, I read it again recently for this podcast. So I, I think I've read it about three times. What about you, Tara? I have read it twice. Uh, the second time, again, being ahead of this podcast. The first time I read it, I think I was probably about 18 or 19. Yeah, at that point I had not really read anything like it in a UK context like any writers that... what do you mean by that I mean I guess if we're putting her in the context of like post-colonialism multiculturalism those kinds of things I don't really think at that point I had read very many non-white British authors um, I think anyone who I had read at that point was either American South Asian. So I think like the experience of reading someone who was speaking to an immigrant experience, speaking to those things was not something I had ever read in a British context before that book. So that was that was definitely very like formative in a lot of ways. So Tara and I wanted to invite someone onto the show who could help us put all of these feelings about white teeth into context. We want to know what the book meant to the literary world when it was first published and whether it really represented the watershed moment in publishing that it was praised for at the time. Charmaine Lovegrove has not just seen the publishing industry change over the past 20 years. She's been a part of that change herself. Mm. 
I've been following you on, on Twitter and following your work for a while, so I'm actually quite excited to be chatting to you. Yeah, everyone at Galdem always speaks very highly of you. So yeah, very exciting moment. Thanks, guys. It's really nice to be asked to talk about books. I never get asked to talk about books, so I'm very excited. I'm wondering if you could just first introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm Charmaine Lovegrove. I am um, a publisher at Dialogue Books, which is an inclusive imprint, which is part of Little Brown, which is part of the big, massive Hachette group. I publish books by Black, Asian, marginalised ethnic, LGBTQI plus disability and working class writers um, and represent people from those communities. I love books and reading <laughs> and stories and I also love disrupting the industry to make change to include the people that I publish books by and so I'm really into making kind of substantial long-term change for the industry. You really finessed the bio. <laughs> that was so good. When people ask me to describe myself I'm like uh, <laughs> that was that was on point. Um, By our maths we figured that in 2000, you'd been about 19. Um, is this correct? How old were you in, in the year 2000? <laughs> Before we start, just like telling you what I age you were. I was 19. Um, and, you know, it was a big moment because it was the millennium and we weren't sure if we were going to get to the millennium because of the millennium bug which now just seems so crazy as we're dealing with a pandemic but we really thought that we might it we might not live to see it um and that you know 2000 wouldn't happen and so it was a really exceptional crazy year so obviously we're taking it back to the year 2000 to talk about White Teeth and Zadie Smith. So I guess our first question is, do you remember reading the book at that time? I totally remember reading the book at that time. Um, I remember everything about it coming out and the kind of the hype that this young British woman had written this sort of exceptional multicultural London novel with all of the rich tapestry of all of the different types of people that sort of exist within the city and all of the religions and the communities and um, and also the hopes and dreams um, and the sort of accidentals that happen within the city and it was so illuminating to finally get my hands on something that had the promise of talking about a London that I might know about. Yeah, I, I guess up until that point, was there anything you'd read that came close to that? I mean, I'd read Sam Sevlon's The um, Lonely Londoners, so that kind of gave me a glimpse into my grandparents who are part of the Windrush generation. And I'd also read Bucci Entometa and her book Second Class Citizen, which is kind of similarly around a sort of Nigerian kind of Windrush um, era experience. In terms of black narratives that were more contemporary, I hadn't, but I had read um, The Buddha of Suburbia and I'd also read The Black Album by um, Hanif Qureshi. So um, those books also dealt with that multiculturalism and sort of trying to fit in. Um, White Teeth felt like a culmination of those two books together, but with more black characters, I suppose, and, and, and a more a different kind of white middle class. Mm. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about 
the, this idea of the hype because you say you sort of remember the media storm around it quite vividly and I'm, I'm really kind of interested in this idea of white teeth as something that was a sort of crossover point or a watershed moment or a kind of yeah e- explosion in the in the culture I think that by the time it was the year 2000 I think Okay, so I'd also been working in lots of bookshops. So at this time I was working at Foils on Charing Cross Road. I was running the black literature section. So I think it's at this point that sort of the marketing of a book and how a book was marketed towards people really hit me. There were posters and there were signings and there were lots of reviews and it was just a book that everybody was talking about. And, you know, that's really important and really exciting at like that moment in time as you're kind of coming of age you know I was 19 so I wasn't although as an adult I was still a teenager and that thing of like anything can happen to anyone and especially someone who is of color and from London then I just thought was um, really magical. How rare do you think it was to see someone who looked like Zadie command that kind of mainstream attention you know what's really funny is that I don't ever really remember thinking that I never looked at her and thought we're similar why do you think that is I think maybe because she's mixed race and she's quite light-skinned and so she kind of to me looked like Sade I never was like oh this this person has had my life Mm. I think also she went to Cambridge and I don't know. I mean, I, I also, I mean, I really partied a lot as well. <laughs> like I had like, I was always out, you know, and I partied a lot when I was really young. So the idea of kind of writing, like sitting and writing a book just meant that you were part of a studiousness that I just didn't possess, you know? So I just didn't like, whilst I always respected what she was doing and what, and, and the fact that she had done it, I never, ever kind of was like, oh, I could do that or be part of that. It didn't inspire me in that way. I never kind of looked towards her as a kind of icon of my generation. And now that we're talking about it, it's interesting that I I didn't. I, you've sort of alluded to this maybe, but I guess outside of what a phenomenon, I guess it was, did you actually like White Teeth? I really enjoyed it after the first chapter. Like I couldn't, I really didn't like the first chapter and it's still a first chapter that I don't connect with at all. Um, Archie's chapter. And even when I'm editing books, sometimes I do actually think about how this opening chapter has actually stayed with me for um, a very like 20 years. Um, So it obviously was really impactful. What do you think it is about that first chapter? Do you do you feel like it's starting with the perspective of Archie that throws you off or, you know, it's something about it that slows it down for you? I think the thing is, is that Archie is ultimately like a really mundane character. And so I think with all of the hype around the book, kind of open with someone who, you know, who's... He's the boring white guy, right? Yeah, but it's like, he's so unaccomplished that he can't even kill himself properly. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's just like, you know, but also it's just really long. I just remember it being very long and thinking okay, I'm going to have to stick with this. And it definitely paid off, but um, it was pretty bold to kind of start with that. Um, but I think we we had a better attention span then. 
I don't know that you could really do that now in the same way and not hook your readers in really from the first line. One thing that I guess Simran and I were both talking about is the idea that at the time White Teeth was praised for its freshness and its vibrancy. And, you know, we were both kids when it came out. So it's sort of maybe retroactively, it feels like those words are almost a bit coded um, in reference to like the multiracial characters and the sort of quote unquote new perspectives that they offered. Um, in terms of that marketing at the time, like, did you feel that it was being marketed in I don't, like a cynical way? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it was just, like everything was so different, you know, like we didn't even have mobile phones, really. And we didn't have Twitter and we didn't I mean, we sort of barely had the Internet. So I think the thing was, is that you wouldn't call it marketing in the way that you would today. I can't remember the words kind of fresh and vibrant being used. I just remember it being about sort of being new. And I don't remember it really speaking towards like multiculturalism in that way. I think it was to the specific groups that are mentioned in the book and the characters and their backgrounds. I don't really remember that being the thing. I remember it just being like, this is a startling new voice on the literary scene and it was just very clear that she was um, Sadie Smith was going to become a star she was going to be part of a new generation of the literati and so you know that's also loaded in a way because I think what retrospectively White Teeth has done is that actually it was sort of written for the next generation who had been reading Ian McEwan, for example, and that she was going to fit into that arena. So it wasn't like a new arena was carved out for kind of more edgy or um, subversive or like, you know, writing. It was more that it was just a new person who was joining the old guard. And I would argue that that's kind of exactly what's sort of happened. That's really interesting that you you put it that way, because that's something that Tara and I have been discussing as well. The fact that Zadie Smith was discovered via a short story in the Maze Anthology, her advance being, I think it's like a quarter of a million pounds or something like that, yeah, um, exactly. on the basis of an 80-page sample, not even a completed manuscript. And it's kind of interesting to me how she, in some ways fits into this quite privileged trajectory and and there is a kind of path for for somebody who kind of yeah goes through Oxbridge. Yeah exactly and I think you know despite the fact that I had grown up in a privileged area you know I'm from Battersea it is really affluent there it's um I just didn't connect into that you know it wasn't my the literary world despite working in a bookshop wasn't actually ever my interest and it still kind of isn't you know now that I'm a publisher I live in Berlin like I then moved to Bristol like I'm sort of as far away from literary British publishing scene as you can get and you could say the same for um, Sadie Smith I suppose that she's in New York but that's the heart of another kind of intellectual scene and I suppose in a way that is in Germany as well like I definitely feel like I'm in a intellectual scene here but it, it's it's different the gaze is entirely different to how it is in an English language um, speaking world and I think the thing was is that it just felt like a path 
and her race, it transcended the privilege of accessibility. It just never occurred to me that it wasn't anything other than a brilliant, young, talented writer that got the opportunities because she was in the right place at the right time and because she was able to show her talent from an early age. And I think that's just how I, exactly how I saw it. And then you become part of this literary establishment and that's where she stayed. Um, And that hasn't, you know, changed the work that I've had to do if that's you know it's it's meant that I have to do the work because the gaps the gap between her and say Bernadine winning you know White Teeth and Bernadine Ivaristo winning um the Booker Prize for Girl Woman Other is a huge gap you know that was 19 years that's like nearly two decades of, of how long it's taken so I never really thought about her in terms of race I always just thought she just was a really plucky young writer that got a great opportunity and and has continued to make it. Um, let's talk about Bernadine for a second because I think she's a really kind of interesting comparison point um, who I guess you could say a book like Girl, Woman, Other has enjoyed similar kind of crossover success to something like White Teeth. Um, obviously, you know, Bernadine winning the Booker. But that came so much later in her career. I mean, you say yourself, 19 years. She was toiling away. She'd published many other books before she even got a fragment of the recognition that she deserved. I wonder what the difference is between a a Bernadine and and a Zadie and, and kind of what is it about Zadie Smith that allowed her to kind of cross over so early um, while, while someone like Bernadine, who is not any less talented or accomplished, um, you know, it was so much more difficult for her. Yeah, so I think there's like a couple of things. I think that to sort of make it about, to compare them because of race would be like really reductive, right? So yes, they're both mixed race slash black women, um, however they identify. Um, Bernadine definitely identifies as black. I'm not sure about Sadie Smith because I kind of don't follow her trajectory around this conversation very much. Um, But Bernadine, I've been reading for so long. Like I've read everything that she's written. She is an incredibly experimental and, um, you know, she uses poetry, she uses prose, she has like very different styles in all of her books. She has an absolutely fierce imagination that transcends different genres, but always brings it back within this kind of very deep cultured aspect. You know, I really love Bernadine's work and have done um, since I was a teenager. Bernadine always asks us to consider a different way of seeing things that may be in front of us. And that's like the most powerful thing that you can you can do. I mean, Girl, Woman, Other, it entirely blew me away as probably the book that I would relate to as the most London, like the most black London book that I've ever read. I've just published in April Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendes. And, you know, that has themes of being black and gay and Jehovah Witness. But again, like it's an entirely original text and a a new way of looking at people that you haven't necessarily heard of before in those intersections and I suppose what was really interesting about White Teeth um, is that 
the world in which it was being presented to me wasn't new to me by any stretch of the imagination. I just enjoyed being able to immerse myself in something that was really familiar. Whereas with Bernadine, what she does for me is that she she brings everything anew. So when I opened my bookshop in 2009 in um, Berlin, then the first book we read for our book club was Blonde Roots. And Blonde Roots by Bernadine Evaristo is um, about the slave trade, but the slave trade is reversed. So the slaves are white. You know, it's just an incredible book. It's also set in London, in Londinium. And now everyone's rediscovering it. People hadn't heard of it. And but because of Bernadine's success from the Booker Prize and they're, they're now reading it. And really around this time when everybody is thinking about race, to consider that it could happen in reverse is just mind-bending. You know, off the back of people just discovering Bernadine, do you think it's time in general to be illuminating people who have maybe been doing this for years but haven't stepped into the spotlight in the same way? Like, is now a good time to be starting to shine a light on people who maybe, for various reasons, were not brought through the publishing world and into the limelight in quite the same way? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, if you, you know, it's, it's also up to readers to sort of engage and as well, like there's there's lots of different facets and assets to it. I think it's really, I think it's a very complicated and loaded thing to just kind of think that because someone has done something that they deserve the opportunity. I also wonder where like the question of sort of talent and respect for readers comes from um, when you when you think about that, because not every book is brilliant and not every writer should be celebrated. And we've got lots of writers who are celebrated that, you know, aren't that great but they just happen to have a big platform in order to sort of see it in that sort of black and white way of who should be amplified then we really have to take the responsibility of what reading a book means you know for me it's about being transformed and to be able to see the world slightly differently to understand the lives of others from a different perspective like those are the things those are the reasons that I come to literature um and sometimes it's okay if some things are quieter um not everything has to be noisy Charmaine you asked a question um in a a kind of Guardian Q&A to Zadie Smith back in 2018. I'm going to reread it to you in case you can't remember it verbatim. Um, Oh yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You said, how has it felt for you from such a young age to be viewed as a mouthpiece for race, gender and culture because so few others have been invited to have their stories heard? Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you asked that question. I think I asked that question because... Because I think I've always just felt very uncomfortable around this idea that this one person has to carry the weight of what it means to be black and British and a writer from such a young age. And I think it's I think it was like totally ridiculous that you're kind of given this edict and then you have to carry it with you forever. And also because I'm really aware that there's a lot of black British women who don't connect with Zadie Smith and that's also entirely okay. And but there's just like an assumption around who she is and what she's supposed to represent. And I just think that must have been really, really hard, especially when you're so young and you haven't even figured out who you are. You know, who I was at 
at 19 is um, I don't party as much as I did then. Um, so, you know, it's like we're different people and um, I'm much more serious and studious and and people change and like this responsibility of, of it all. You know, I now that I have a responsibility in that um, as a as a spokesperson for change, I can't imagine having to do that um, at 19, 20, 21. I just think it would have been a lot. So I think that's where that question came from with the hindsight of time. And how did she respond? Do you remember? Uh, okay. I, really forgot I just, that. I was, you know what? I have actually got the quote in front of me. I was just uh, setting you up in case you did remember. Well, she she said that, um, and if, as too often happens, publishing houses choose only writers they recognise from their own milieu, their own backgrounds, class, perceived community, etc., then you get far less variety in this pool of minds than we all miss out, writers principally, but readers too. So she's kind of talking about how she never really wanted to be seen as a symbol and instead wanted to be one of many voices because a plurality of voices and perspectives is what makes books so kind of interesting and unique, right? Exactly. And I think that that was the thing is that it was all too much too soon. You know, the fear which is luckily saying that didn't happen because she has gone on to write many more books and she will continue to write forever, is that people will burn out through that that kind of level of scrutiny and expectation. So I guess part of the weight of expectation on writers like Sadie does come from the fact that the publishing industry has like notoriously been very white in this country. And I guess I was wondering, to what extent do you feel that black women and other women of colour maybe have to play the game when it comes to selling their novels? Because I'm thinking of um, Candice Carty-Williams when it came to Queenie, because she came from a marketing background, deciding to use, you know, black Bridget Jones, even though like, you know, anyone who's read Queenie, like that's like not really doing it justice to my mind. But, you know, to compare it to this very big, like establishment kind of novel, I guess, is that kind of something that you have to do in order to be taken seriously in that arena? Um, it's really funny because Candice is actually just behind the door because she's at my house. <laughs> and so I can hear her voice and I'm like, you might be able to pick her up. Um, it's almost too reductive again because there's only so much space, right? So for example, Super Thursday we published, which was at the end of September, Normally, Super Thursday is the first Thursday of October, and it's the date which the most amount of books are published in the year on a single day. Books are published every Thursday in the UK and every Tuesday in America. We have less than a thousand independent bookshops in in the UK, and we have a few hundred chains, um, and then we have Amazon. And so when you start thinking about like, what does, how do people find out about something? Then you have to use things that are really quick, that will grab people's attention. And you have to use buzzwords and, you know, you have to use these marketing and publicity tools at our disposal. And so sometimes it can be really unimaginative, but, you know, actually, if you think about Bridget Jones and Queenie, they're both books that one Candice loves Bridget Jones, like she just thinks it's really brilliant books um, and she loves the films and she really kind of identifies with that thing of like someone 
wanting to have the life that they feel that they should have um, but it's all just sort of going a bit wrong and then there's lots of mental health issues and a lot of tears you know and so in that way it's not that far away from it it's just original because because Queenie isn't Bridget Jones but in terms of saying this is big and important and um, groundbreaking then it is the black Bridget Jones. I think it's about understanding that all books are compared to each other and that isn't about race, that is about themes. And we look at themes quite a lot because although people are writing in an original space, we're also writing about like the human condition and emotions and and thoughts and feelings and love and experience, right? And so you can kind of categorize those into into what types of books they are. So I know it sounds reductive, but actually it doesn't, it doesn't actually feel that reductive. And also it worked because it cemented it as like a really big book. And, you know, it's um, sold 250,000 copies and it's done phenomenally well, which is what Bridget Jones did. Do you know what I mean? It's like, (laughs) it just kind of, and instead, what was you done? Like, just compare it to someone else who's black because... You know, it's like, that's what I was saying earlier, like you can't really compare Bernadine and Zadie because they're just entirely different types of writers, you know? One is like super experimental um, and the other one is very much a realist and and you just can't compare them. I've been working with books since I was um, 16, you know? It's like a really long time and I I understand exactly where the issues are with like race and exclusion within the industry. And, you know, I spend a lot of time on, on the change and making substantive, long-lasting structural change to the industry. But I also I also understand things that we get right and the things that really work. I do think that I've said the word reductive quite a few times, but I do think that without understanding exactly how something works um it can be very easy to be kind of i can see why it's easy to be critical but i think it's really important that we can look at things a bit broader or not get stuck on the things that are not as pertinent to the issue is there anything else that you wanted to say charmaine that you didn't get a chance to to talk about so the Black Writers Guild, um, it was founded by um, Nels Abbey and Afwa Hirsch. And then I joined um, in the first session as an organiser. And it is a group of people and a sort of a membership body of people, Black writers, Black British writers who are based in the UK. And so some are American, but oh, and some are Jamaican, They're based all over the UK who um, have kind of come together to lobby the publishing industry around the exclusion of black people from um, publishing. That it was really important for us to take ownership of the, the positioning of blackness um, as opposed to being BAME. I think, you know, being black is very different to being Asian. And then there's lots of different types of Asian identities and cultures, as there are countries and individuals. And I think that the conflation between our experiences is something that has um, radically left specifically black people behind. As a publisher, it's really important to me that I'm part of the Black Writers Guild because I'm able to impart very specific knowledge on how publishing actually works, you know? So again, with like the strap line, 
I know that you can you can say the strap lines really you know feels in some way like you know it doesn't it doesn't sit right. But actually, if you know that you've got thirty seconds to pitch a book in a in a sales meeting with Waterstones, you've literally got thirty seconds. And so, what are you going to say? You're going to say Black Bridget Jones. Queenie is Black Bridget Jones. Boom. <laughs> you know, and so like, so okay, let's not focus on that. Like, what are we going to focus on? We're going to focus on like, what did the marketing budget look like? What you know, we're going to focus on on other stuff. We're going to say, well, how many people who are black actually got to work on this book? You know, what actually happened around it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I love bigger picture um, stuff, and I really love change. That was such like a good summing up. Yeah. Uh, you clearly are very good at your job, Charmaine. Thanks so much for sharing all your your knowledge and and kind of making the publishing industry more transparent. Absolutely, my pleasure. <laughs> Okay, wow. She is so great. Um, It's just like really impressive listening to someone talk so knowledgeably. And obviously that's her job and she's clearly incredible at her job. But even just listening to her talk about books and just the books that she's been reading and the books that she read 20 years ago and the amount of detail she could give on that. Like I can't describe books I read a year ago particularly well. Tell me about it. I'm feeling very inspired to up my literary game right now. Given all the new voices coming through that Charmaine mentioned, there's one thing that's sort of still on my mind. I really want to figure out how Zadie has managed to stay relevant over the last 20 years. What do you think, Clara? I think what's really interesting about her is that whenever she publishes an essay, for example, pertaining to like she did, she did um, an essay about Brexit, the Fences essay, and um, she did an essay about Stormzy's performance at Glastonbury. And I think what is really interesting is, and this is obviously me as a journalist who spends too much time online, but, you know, they, those pieces go viral. Like, everyone is sharing those pieces. Everyone is talking about them. And there's a sense with however she chooses to convey her thoughts or her writing, you know, there is a sense that, oh, I need to read that. You know, when her book of essays came out this year, it, it was just like, oh, of course I need to buy that. Yeah, she had a book of lockdown essays that um, called Intimations. And it's, it's very short. It's very good. It's, it's worth reading if you like her writing. Yeah. And I, I just think that even if the culturally significant thing associated with her is white teeth, I don't think it's fair on actually the way that she continues to have significance and continues to like weave her way into like contemporary narratives. Uh, One thing I I do want to touch on is that idea of white teeth as being emblematic of the optimism of the moment, because that's something it was massively praised for. It was praised for the multiculturalism and like the plurality of voices. You have multiplicity of voices and perspectives. And also one of the central friendships in the novel between Archie and Samad is an interracial friendship. Archie's also in an interracial marriage. Obviously, we know that's not necessarily a sign of progressive politics, but at the time, I think people felt that um, the smoothness with which they were able to inhabit each other's worlds and the way they could kind of get along said something about the tolerance of the society that, um, you know, Zadie Smith was writing the book in. Yeah, um, there's an anti review from The Telegraph at the time that 
speaks about how white teeth was post-racial, um, which obviously in 2020 to think about the concept of post-racial in any context is bizarre. But like particularly looking back at the year 2000, it really speaks to that strange, I guess, naive optimism that a lot of people seem to have. But then Sadie Smith was actually quite wary of that. And she described it as kind of a fantasy book. Like she was aware that that was not the reality of it. You know, she was writing a version of London that she knew and that she had direct experience of. Um, you know, in an interview with The Guardian, she she said at the time that she was expected to be an expert on multicultural affairs when actually multiculturalism isn't a genre, it's a fact of her life. And, you know, she was 21 when she wrote it and that was just the way she was in the world. It was just her reality. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Charmaine Lovegrove for joining us and giving us all that great insight. If you're enjoying the show, which we hope you are, please share it with all your friends. It would also really help us out if you left us a rating. Five stars only, please, and a review in your podcast app. As always, there are links to everything that we've referenced in today's episode in the show notes. And you can also find the link to suggest an episode topic to us there. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at MH2020. And we're back next week on Tuesday to fill you in about Craig David, the man who made Garage mainstream and the enemies he made along the way. Twenty Twenty is a Message Head production, written and presented by me, Tara Joshi, and Simran No Fillings Hands. Produced and edited by Jake Atayevich and Emily Wally. Sandra Ferrari is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley. <laughs>